Hello, I'm Tony Collins and this is the Rugby Reloading Podcast. Today the podcast breaks new ground with not one but two guests, Martin Whitcomb and Hugh Richards. They're here to talk about their new book, The Indomitables, Rugby League's Greatest Tour, the story of the 1946 British Rugby League Lions Tour to Australia and New Zealand. Martin is the grandson and biographer of Frank Whitcomb, the great Welsh forward who went on that tour, and Hugh is journalist, historian and the nearest thing we have to a regular guest on Rugby Reloading. The 1946 Lions Tour was one of rugby's great tours. It was arranged just weeks after the end of World War II, and the only transport available to get to Australia was an aircraft carrier, the HMS Indomitable, hence the nickname of the tourists, the Indomitables. It was not only a memorable tour for the rugby, it remains Britain's only unbeaten Ashes series, but it was a landmark in the relations between Britain and Australia. In fact, it was such an eventful and historic tour that Martin and Hugh struggled to cram everything in, even inside the book's 450 pages. So, without further ado, welcome to the show, Martin and Hugh. Thanks. Hi. Nice to be on, Tony. Great. Well, it's great to have you on. Um, so, well, let's start at the beginning, Martin. Um, how how come the tour was arranged so quickly after the end of World War II? Um, I think from an Australian perspective, the sort of the devastation of the Second World War, um, men serving overseas, coming home, and um, a, a lack of international sport. The, the the whole thing was probably a way to kickstart some kind of normality in Australia and um, obviously in the same way it was for, for the Great Britain players, the England players as they were known then, with uh, getting back to international competition. And, and Hugh, um, Herbert Everett, H.V. Everett, uh, the Australian politician played a crucial role in, uh, in in setting the tour up. Can you say something about his background and who he was? Well, Everett, who at this stage is, is foreign minister and who is one of the uh, crucial leaders of the Australian Labour Party through the middle of the 20th century, and a very very major figure, um, was a actually had, had had been a long term backer of rugby league. Um, as a student at Sydney University, he attempted to convert the Sydney University Rugby Union Club to Rugby League. Um, he failed in that, but he got, he got the Rugby League section set up, which, of course, in time, actually for a while, then actually became a uh, club that played in the Premiership. Um, had he succeeded in that, uh, good historians like Tom Hickey um, suspect it's possible that rugby, rugby, League might actually, or rugby Union might actually have died altogether in Australia. Um, so he's got, a long, he's got a long history as a league campaigner. Um, he, I think at this time he's patron of the New South Wales Rugby League. So he's a major figure in rugby league, he's a major figure in politics. Um, when, when it becomes clear that the British Rugby League are actually not terribly keen on the tour, left to themselves, they put it off a year because uh, they think, you know, it's, it's, it's too soon, there's, there's other things going on, um, there's no hurry. Um, Everett actually comes in person to speak to Rugby League Council. Of course, this is a this is an enormous moment for rugby league council. They've never had that sort of attention from people of that prominence in uh, in Britain. You know, they've not been spoken to by cabinet ministers or people like that. And he speaks to the meeting of, of league council. A league council puts off voting at that point. I suspect there's a feeling that they would simply they would simply be sort of rather carried away by the excitement of having somebody like Everett speak to them. But it's his intervention. I think is is reasonable to say swayed rugby league council if he'd not intervened i think it's very likely um there would have been a 1947 tour instead which might still which might still be pretty memorable but obviously we wouldn't be talking about them quite the same way 
it became a big event even before they set off, didn't it, Martin? Because the lots of debate about the different about players who were going to be selected, and there was eleven out of the twenty six players selected were Welsh, weren't they? Can you say something about who these players were? Yeah, I, I think this is one of the areas of the book which um, certainly for myself and I, I know for you as well, it was very interesting because when you look at um, you know, there was obviously the the game that took place in France when uh, a rugby league fifteen, uh, sorry, rugby league fifteen, a rugby league thirteen played against uh, a French select team at Parc de Princes. Um, that was kind of considered to be the backbone of what would be the touring party or something that resembled the test team, which would play Australia. But you know, when we looked at the tour trials and um, you saw some of the blokes who took part in the trials, it, it really was interesting and. Um, particularly the Hoyt contingent, who, you know, it's um, it's not something I was really aware of. And, um, you know, these blokes, they didn't make the tour, but um, I think the trials and the, the, the players that were looked at, it was uh, it one of the really interesting parts of the book. Who was the who were the most prominent names that that, that was, was selected then? Because I, I think some of them are still remembered today, aren't they? Yeah, I mean... If you think of people like Gus Risman, Ernest Ward, possibly Tommy McHugh, you know, they're, they're some of the most iconic players of uh, of their generation. And um, certainly in uh, in the case of uh, Ernest Ward and Gus Risman, you have the, the captain of the 46 tour. I, I think um, Ernest captured the, the following Natchez series to, uh, to Australia. Um, so they were probably two of the standout players of that side. And, and Gus Risman himself, the captain, was really at the veteran stage by 19, uh, 1946, wasn't he? I mean, it was his third tour and what, he, was, he was already in his mid-30s. Yeah, I, I mean, Gus is a, he's an incredible uh, sportsman. And for longevity, I mean... Uh, any sport, I think uh, your good self has written this, Tony. There, there can't be very few people to match him because I think most people would uh, see this as uh, Gussie's hurrah captain in the, uh, the the team to the Ashes victory. But lo and behold, he takes the job on at Workington and uh, some of his best days are yet to come. Um, so, you know, not only an iconic rugby league player, but probably one of the most iconic sportsmen that we've had in this uh, in this country. And Hugh, I mean, subsequently the, t- the the selection of the tour has been remembered more for uh, the controversy uh, about Roy Francis's non-selection. Um, and I, I think you've done a bit of research on the circumstances around Roy's non-selection for the forty-six tour, haven't you? Yes, it's uh, it is. It's, it's it's certainly been quite striking that this is this seems to be the thing that people now remember about the tour. Um, and it's in a sense, it, it's a rather subsequent controversy. It's it, it's not doesn't really seem to be much controversy at the time. Now there are several uh, qualifications put on this. One is that this is the time of newspaper rationing, so newspapers very often are only four pages. So there's le- very limited scope for the sort of speculative articles you would normally get around at all. Um, that the papers available through the British Library tend to be tend to be the last late London editions. So for instance, we don't have access to Eddie Rearing's columns or uh, Jim Sullivan's. But at the same time, what is noticeable is a complete and utter absence of discussion of 
um, the ex even in his local paper, which admittedly is somewhat eccentric, um, of, of Roy Francis' exclusion. Um, and of course, this what this goes back to very the goes back to very largely to um, Robert Gates' quite reasonable speculation in 1985 that it was down to uh, the White Australia policy. Now, if we're we're of course now in this rather tricky situation, since we're trying to trying to prove a negative, yeah, you, can you actually disprove? Can you disprove this? I think the point, and I think the, the answer to this is. So unless we can unless there is actually a letter, perhaps somewhere in Australian archive, because certainly nothing British archives, which gives chapter and verse to this. Uh, by definition, it's hard to prove either way. But the as far as we can see is there's not much, there's not much actual evidence to support the idea that it's to do with. Um, the white Australia policy, which after all is to stop people settling, not visiting. Uh, the New Zealanders had taken Maoris to um, on their tours in 1930 and 1938. Uh, in 1949, the Australian Rugby Union would actually host a tour from, by, by an All Black team, which was specifically created in order to compensate the Maori players who were not allowed to go to South Africa um, on, on, on the Rugby Union tour that year. Um, and it, yeah, it's, it, I think it, I think that specific element, although I said I think it was a perfectly reasonable speculation, and Robert o, Robert only ever stated that as speculation. He never stated it as definitive. Um, and the other thing is Roy's for, Roy's form. Um, 1943, 1942, 1943. He's among the best wingers in rugby league. I think he's leading scorer in 1942. He scores 30 tries. 43, he scored 20, and he's. Only Eric Batten has scored more tries than him. Um, he barely plays in 1944 and 1945. Clearly, service duties take from elsewhere. He doesn't play a single game of senior rugby league. And he gets off to a very slow start in 1946. And the players, with one exception, who get, tri get trialled in 1946, um, historically do not match up to Roy Francis. But of course, the selectors don't know that. They are What they're doing is they're picking the right team uh, to be to go on tour in 1946 um, with no idea of how these guys are going to match up historically over time. Um, but at the time when the first touring team was the first trial team selected, uh, Roy Francis has played 11 games of Barrow and he scored two tries. So he's not making a colossally convincing case for selection. Uh, so on form now, very clearly, uh, Roy was the victim of racism. In at times, um, yeah, the fact that rugby league has a better record than other sports on racism doesn't, you know, does not make that record impeccable. And I think there's very little doubt that um, you know, Roy was Roy probably would have had to have been better than other players to go on the tour. But I think it's per, I think there is a per, perfectly reputable argument that simply on yeah you know, simply on form um, he would have had a battle. Uh, to be chosen. It's also should be added one of the most competitive uh, parts of the team. The, the great surprise at the time is that Alan Edwards is not chosen. I think Alan Edwards has been regarded as pretty much an absolute certainty from the beginning. Um, he gets squeezed out. It would appear by Jim Luthwaite, uh, also a Barrow player. And again, Jim, you know, Jim Luthwaite has been over the last two years has been one of the most prolific scorers in, in rugby league. So, so Martin, when 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 the the party was actually selected, the how come they they had to travel on an on an aircraft carrier? 
it's not the usual way that touring parties uh, go down under. Yeah, I think the big problem at the time was um, you've got a combination of you've got airmen, you've got um, soldiers um, returning to all the different parts of the, the Dominions, the Empire as it was then, and uh, every vessel that could carry people was being used in some capacity. And I mean, the dispersal of the troops and the, the POWs and, you know, all, all the people who worked in the war effort, I, I personally don't know how long it took to to see that job through, but it, it must have taken, you know, some years after the war to complete it. So transport was a huge problem. And um, the berths that were provided by the Navy... Um, the boys all travelled on an aircraft carrier full of people returning home to Australia um, after the war effort. And then once once they actually arrived in uh, in Australia, that wasn't the end of the journey, was it? Because they, they, they docked in Fremantle, which is in Western Australia and considerable different uh, considerable distance from rugby league land in Australia. Uh, yeah, I mean, it must have been... Uh, they must have thought when they got to Fremantle that you know they'd finally arrived. I think the the voyage must have been a it's a hell of a thing for for travelling in those days to travel that distance in all those days. But I believe the Victorious was the aircraft carrier that they should have transferred to for the journey around to Sydney, um, but it had been damaged. And um, it, it's a very interesting part of the tour which took place next was the train journey across Australia. I mean, it was ocean to ocean, uh, and uh, the journey itself, I think, remembering it took around five to seven days. There was coal restrictions. Um, the, the train could only travel at, uh, I think it was 30, 35 miles an hour. There was no bedding on most of the journey. The difference with the size of the gauge of the rail in different sections of Australia meant frequent train journey changes. And um, in all this adversary, sleeping on the floor, I, I believe a lot of bonding took place, um, as it does uh, in these circumstances with the team. And uh, the tough journey that they had there, um, it probably got the boys in the right frame of mind for the challenges ahead. Hugh, when they arrived, it was... Um, when they arrived in Sydney and the tour began, it was... Um, it was one of the most memorable tours from a rugby point of view, wasn't it? Because, it, well, as, as I mentioned at the top, it's it was the only Ashes series that Britain did not lose a match in. Uh, but it was very tough and very brutal, and it kind of uh, it, it kind of took up where the um, where the nineteen thirty seven Kangaroo tour to, to Britain left off, despite the fact that was that had been uh, that was nine years previously. It's just the three very ferociously contested. One, one of the interesting things, obviously, at this stage. Um, is the extent to which we actually look at the history. I don't think anybody had yet been sent off in a test match in uh, in Britain, but the, the sendings off were almost routine in uh, test matches in Australia. And of course, you get you know you, see, you, you get more you, you get more sendings off in this series. It's, clear, it's clearly fairly brutally contested, and I think certainly um, you've, you've had some people arguing that um, Br- British teams tend to feel that the yeah, the, almost the, you know, the, the 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 rules were different in Australia, and you know they, they could hit back. And of course, there are, and of course, it, it's British players who were sent off in the first two tests. Uh, Jack Kitching, who really does appear to be desperately unlucky, 
um, after half an hour of the first test, uh, Joe Egan right at the end of the second. Uh, but there is, there's, there's a ferocity about them, uh, which is fairly clear. Uh, it's actually quite interesting. Um, the film we have of it gives some idea, though it's interesting, the, the Jack Kitching incident looks at this distance to be fairly innocent, but there are some horrendous high tackles in there, which certainly nowadays would, uh, uh, would, would, ha- would have somebody marching immediately. Yeah, I think Jack Kitchen's intro. Jack Kitchen, you would have thought on the basis of his biography, would be the last person to be sent off because he was a school teacher and a future Liberal Party uh, parliamentary candidate as well, which probably makes him the only parliamentary candidate ever to be selected for for Great Britain. You know, I think if anybody's going to know the answer to that one, tell me it's probably you. I must admit that one. That one. That, 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 that one. That one came slightly out of left field, actually. Yeah. Um, that's, a, that's, that's probably a good quiz question there for somebody. Um, but um, yes, but it, I mean, I think it, it demonstrates just as you say how brutal it was. And of course, it was Arthur Clues who was sent off in the third test, who shortly became a mainstay of the Leeds team and repeated, uh, uh, re- you know, re- repeated his uh, vigorous approach to the game in his many years at Leeds and then Huntsler. So, I mean, who who are the st- who are the stars of the tour then? I mean, who are the players that, that really stood out for Great Britain? Well, I think it's it's fairly clear from the. Uh... From the reports, Ike Owens, loose forward, um, who, interesting character, had, had a fairly remarkable war record. He'd been something of a, uh, a pioneer among, um, and Martin knows much more about this than I do, but um, being a sort of pioneer parachutist that had jumped more than 200 times um, and has a spectacular tour. He's been perhaps a very good example of what, what does occasionally happen. Somebody who probably, ne- who probably never quite plays as well in Britain as he does on this tour in Australia, when clearly he's an absolute world beast at loose forward. Um, Tom McHugh, who of course, is coming to the end of his career at half-back, um, is, clearly, is also clearly um, a huge success. And he's com- constantly playing on the blind side continu- yeah, continuously, um, ties the Australians up. Um, I think those, those are the two who, from the, from, from the reports, it's absolutely clear are absolutely are the Australians pick out as their sort of main, you know, as, as their main oppressors. Um, Joe Egan clearly has a very fine tour as well. And Martin, your, your, your grandfather, Frank Whitcomb, made a big impression on the Australians. And I think, was he offered a contract by an Australian club? Was, he, was there an attempt to poach him by an Australian club? Yeah, I mean, this is family folklore and I've, I've, never, uh, I've never found any kind of evidence of this, but I believe Frank signed for St George. And um, I know a lot of players there were approached and, and asked if they wanted to come and, come back and play in Australia. But I believe Frank did sign for St George. But he wrote a letter to my grandmother explaining to her that he just signed for St George and the family's future laid in Sydney. Well, I, I, I don't think it went down too well at home, really. And uh, Frank got a letter back from my grandson that uh, she was very happy with the house in Whipsy and Bradford and, uh, you know, they'd like to stay there. So it, it never materialised, but um, I, I think if uh, circumstances had been different, he would uh, he would have stayed in Australia. The other thing I think that's very interesting when you read about the tour is is the reception that the tourists were given in the country towns once they got outside of Brisbane and Sydney. They were treated like returning heroes, and you know a lot of towns had had uh, you know, declared it a, a local holiday and things like that. What can you tell us about the way in which the, the team was seen in, in the, the towns outside of the, the big cities in Australia? 
Well, I think, you know, these, um, you know, the trips to Orange, I remember when we researched that and uh, there was thousands of people at the railway station, all the whistles were going off on the steam engines and it, it must have been an occasion that, I'm sure in most people's mind, it, it was like getting back to normality. The war was over. They had the uh, Great Britain Rugby League team in town. And um, it, it was a specialist celebration occasion for, for many reasons for people, I would think, at that time. But from from the, the players, uh, from the tourist point of view, you know, one thing that, uh, you know, it, it's pretty obvious here that most of the blokes had been surviving off um, not the best diet and rationing for, for, for the war years. Whereas in Aussie, they found the, the land of plenty, you know, in the rural areas, in the farming areas, they were served with fantastic meals of roast beef and lamb and turkey and, and food that they just hadn't seen for years and years and years. And uh, coupled with the traditional kindness of, uh, of people there, it, it, was a, it was a hell of an occasion. And, you know, there's uh, different accounts of how the players had put weight on on tour when they'd arrived in Australia, you know, considerably lighter. And it was just uh, a, a chance to live a life which uh, they hadn't experienced for so long. And it, it, for, the, for the blokes, it must have been fantastic. It must have been, just been fantastic. And Hugh, one of the things that's often forgotten about about this tour is the New Zealand lake. That uh, it, it, you know, generally it's just portrayed as being a big Australia thing, but it also had a big impact in New Zealand when they went over to play New Zealand, didn't it? Yes, well, it's it's actually I think the beginning of. It depends whether you, since how you classify these things, but certainly the years after the Second World War are seen as something of a golden age for New Zealand rugby league. Um, is New Zealand New Zealand win the Test match? And although there's, you, know, you do see suggestions that perhaps the British players regard this as a, um, you know, as a bit of a afterthought after the um, winning the Ashes. Um, you know, the, if you actually look at the team they put out, and the, you know, these 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 are players who are taking the uh, who would take it very seriously. These the three or four players who play in the Test match who hadn't played in Australia are also the players who've been get who generally been playing well in New Zealand, so it's a team that's very largely picked on form. And New, New Zealand beat uh, Great Britain. Uh, the uh, West Coast beat Great Britain, so that you know they, they lose two matches there. So New Zealand rugby league is coming is coming into a point of of fairly serious prosperity, and there are several players who arrive in 1946 who are around until the early 1950s. Um, who are the, sort of the core of that of, of that period, and it's what he actually introduces is a period of several years in which international rugby league generally is very vigorous because Great Britain, Australia, France, and New Zealand are all competitive. Um, it's you know it's not the world we've perhaps been more familiar with, whether it's been Australia and perhaps somebody else, but it's all four countries um, are seriously competitive and all have a chance of beating each other. And of course, you've got the European Championships, where uh, Wales, Wales and England is a seriously competitive match. The French are seriously competitive, and then of course you get the introduction of the other nationalities. Um, so the, we've got. So this is all part of a period in which uh, interna- international rugby league is as vigorous as international rugby union, and a leading player, leading rugby league player, can expect to play as much international rugby as a leading rugby union player. So it's 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 so that you know. It, 
it's big for New Zealand, but I think it's also big for the wider game of rugby league. And of course, that isn't sustained. And I think one of the questions we found ourselves asking afterwards is one can appreciate possibly the reasons why it wasn't sustained, but might, but might more effort have been made to sustain it? Good question. Um, Martin, and on the way back, um, th- there was some player discontent as well, wasn't there? Although it had been a successful tour, the players weren't as happy as what they might have been. And that came to the, to the fore on the trip back. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know the ultimately the circumstance of it all came to be, but I think generally there was a feeling amongst the tour party, particularly how they had to travel across Australia and some of the hardship they'd faced, um, that they, they were in line for a, 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 an extra part of the takings, which, um, you know, they, they weren't being allocated. Um, as with all these things, uh, a letter was submitted. I think it was uh, Gus Risman who gave the letter to uh, Popper Well and Gabbett, the tour managers, and ultimately it would have gone to Bill Fallowfield at, um, at uh, the Rugby League. Um, but I, 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 I think the boys would have realised that it, it would fall on deaf ears, and ultimately it did. I mean, Fallowfield pointed out that they'd done very well, and... Uh, the expenses of the tour, particularly when they had to start flying the lads around uh, from the Queensland leg and over to New Zealand, they did cost more in uh, in logistics than what they expected, and uh, that the players were stuck with what they were promised initially. And Hugh, I mean, one of the problems with researching this material is that it's almost slipped out of of living memory. What sources did you get to draw on when when you were writing the book? The, the, the Rugby League archives at Huddersfield University, which you'll be, well, you'll be better aware than any of us, are somewhat frustrating. You've got minute books, which are very useful, uh, but no correspondence files. So in a sense, you have, so you have the records of decisions that have been taken. Um, but you, what you don't have is the correspondence files that might explain, for instance, why decisions, certain decisions were taken. Um, the big, I think the, the big uh, sources... Um, are, are, are mostly newspapers, and not, those come as often in two or three forms. Uh, there's the British, what's in the British Library, and particularly now a lot of that's online, that's much easier to research than it would have been in the past. There's the Australian Archive Trove, which is very well named, very well, very comprehensive, but there are still things that don't get onto Trove, and um, uh, particularly useful, we've, we've had access to a number of sort of sets of you know, personal records and scrapbooks. Uh, Tom McHugh's scrapbook. Um, was particularly useful. Um, but again, there's one particular item there which we've not even been able to trace in Trove, which is a report, a very brief report um, of a meeting in, of an event. It doesn't even, we can't even find out where it happened or when, at which one of the British journalists on the tour, in the, um, sadly, the age-old British manner, um, decided to lecture his Australian colleagues about their professional practices. Uh, we are told, we are told, somewhat unsurprisingly, that the event broke up in disorder. Um, I don't think it's too hard to imagine what this what this was like, um, but it was one of those ones. It's actually slightly frustrating when you can't, um, uh, you know, when when you can't find out, try and fit it into your pattern. For, you know, there is, um, you know, there's a certain amount of tension with the Australian press throughout, because uh, I think one of the things that the British the, you know, the British players, with the exception of Risman and McHugh, who were there in 1936, I suspect the Australian press, who are much more aggressive, in-your-face, competitive, um, I think comes as a bit of a shock to them. 
and certainly there's there's an inc there's an incident one incident which uh, Gus Risman is irked enough about actually to cite twelve years later in his memoirs, and that and in fact that's one of the ones I think we've established through via trove um, that that was a um, Australian journalist. In fact, he was called Thatcher. May may or may not strike you as appropriate. And the other thing of the other thing which I think has been very useful are things are. Uh, um, statistical websites, which, you know, which are, a lot of which, a lot of which comparatively recently, the, rug, the rugby league project records are very, very helpful. Um, Andrew Ferguson has been immensely helpful there, uh, not least in acknowledging, in fact, firming up one of our slightly surprised discoveries, uh, which was that um, the Australia, the oldest Australian debutant, actually was not the guy who's been said it was for years. It was actually Ron Bailey who knocked a couple of years off his of his age, and this seems to be a bit of a practice. You have both Ron, ba on, Ron Bailey on one side and Trevor Foster on the other, who are both claiming to be two or three years younger than they uh, than they are, which I suppose is understandable when uh, when players might be written off at 31, 32, and they want to carry on playing. Uh, but so those websites, and and also, and I think also the record keepers, uh, which Neil Ormston has revived in the last two or three years, and certainly, for instance, in terms of researching. You know, the case for or against Roy Francis to actually have Barrow's team sheets, uh, you know, records of who played, records of who played for who, um, the wartime team sheets to Dewsbury. And so, for instance, to be able to see you know, that Roy doesn't play a senior game of rugby league in 1944-5, and he starts slowly in 1945-6. All of these things are extreme. All of these things are extremely useful. Uh, what you do lose, what of course we, ha we haven't had. Of course, as, as you point out, as, as we've gone beyond living memory, um, is the uh, is the memories of you know, memories of people who were involved in it. In it you know, I suppose, you know, that simply come that simply comes the past your time. I do. I have found myself uh, thinking of a couple of occasions when I was a reporter at when Bradford Northern played in London and Trevor Foster was the timekeeper. Uh, that I didn't take the opportunity to chat to him, but um, one I was somewhat awestruck by him being Trevor Foster. So he was busy, and three, obviously, I had no idea I'd be doing this project in 2020. And Martin, just to wrap up, because we're running out of time, you actually did meet someone with living memory of that tour, didn't you? Pat Devery, the Australian three-quarter, and his wife, Dolores. Yeah, um, we got an email address from the Heritage uh, Department at uh, Huddersfield, uh, and um, for, for, uh, for Pat's, uh, Pat's address, Pat Devery's email address, so I fired it off, didn't think any of it. Some months later, I got a reply from his wife, Dolores, who explained that Pat was fighting dementia. And unfortunately, it, she didn't think that we'd be able to get much information from him. But through sending photographs and exchanging uh, email messages, uh, sending clips of the game, this significant part of Pat's life came back to him. And... Uh, it got to a stage where Dolores said she was confident enough to sit down with Pat and uh, between the two of them over a, over a couple of weeks, they wrote the forward for the book, which was, you know, a very humbling thing. But it actually resulted in a phone call with myself and Pat where this wouldn't have been possible in an earlier part of his sickness. Well, we talked about the game and uh, he said he'd remembered my grandfather and he described him as being a big guy and it was... Uh, it was a fantastic thing to uh, to chat to Pat about the game, but more importantly, for the rest of his life with Dolores, they had something every day that they could talk about. 
And, um, you know, she could look forward in the morning to asking him about the 1946 series and the players and the memories. And uh, it was a great thing as, uh, you know, as a human being to be able to be involved with something like that. Wow. That's an incredible story that just shows what history, heritage and memories can do for people. So thanks very much indeed, Martin and Hugh. It's been a huge pleasure to have you on the show. Just to remind listeners, the book is called The Indomitables, Rugby League's Greatest Tour by Martin Whitcomb and Hugh Richards, and it's published by Ashley Drake Publishing. You can find a link to the book on my webpage, as well as to Martin's early biography of his grandfather, Frank Whitcomb. As I'm sure you know, my website is www.rugbyreloaded.com, where you can find a complete archive of episodes about the history of rugby and the other football codes. So, until next time, thanks for listening.